0: Well, let's pray before we get going here. Our Father and our God, we are thankful for an opportunity to again gather together physically uh, uh, in Your presence, and uh, we uh, know that again, there's many fellowships throughout this world that can't do that, and You've allowed us to meet. So we're thankful for that. We pray for them. We pray for strength for those uh, brothers and sisters in Christ that are facing. Uh, Uh, persecution as it's ramping up and we just pray that they would be faithful we pray that through their ministries christ would be exalted that men and women would come uh, to know the savior and worship him and worship uh, you so again we praise you and we just pray your blessing upon our time and we pray this in christ's name amen well as you know today's mother's day and i know do not normally uh, stop and address what i would consider cultural holidays or hallmark holidays um, even though we all owe our mothers a tremendous debt of gratitude for the countless number of things that they've done for us in our lives, and very literally, apart from them, we wouldn't be here, right? But today's different. I've felt for quite a few weeks now that I needed to stop and address, not Mother's Day, but the issue of biblical womanhood uh, before we get back into the text of John, uh, because we're living in a time where being a woman is completely under attack. Over the past year, I've found myself doing more topical sermons than normal as I've addressed certain cultural issues that just seem to be coming at us from all different directions. And, and of course, there's a great balance that I think, uh, a danger in a balance, uh, that needs to be exercised between uh, addressing too many uh, cultural issues and then staying with the text. So it's important to stay with the text, but, again, I just find myself today that I, I, I'm compelled to talk about this issue because I think there's certain times and seasons when we do need to address from the pulpit what's going on culturally, uh, and we need to hear from God and his word on those issues, right? We need to let God speak to the issue of the day, uh, because this godless culture is speaking to us all of the time, and this godless age, this godless world system that we are a part of, uh, that is so prevalent around us, is demanding our attention everywhere. Uh, Not only is there confusion in the culture of what it means to be a woman, but sadly, I think there is a growing sense of confusion and distress even amongst Christian women also, who are being profoundly influenced and disoriented about who God is and who God has made them to be and the high calling that they have uh, in the mission of uh, their life as a woman. Many women are in mass buying into the way of the thinking of the world concerning womanhood and marriage and family, and those thoughts that are culturally accepted and politically correct even are fundamentally flawed and don't line up with biblical truth. So in a time where biblical truth and righteousness have been completely jettisoned from the public discourse in life and every kind of perversion and immorality promoted, including this idea of so called transgenderism, where men are trying to convince us that they are in reality uh, women trapped in men's bodies, and therefore to make sure that we're not discriminating against them, we are commanded to pretend that they are women and to allow them to have access into those areas in our life and culture that have rightly and historically been segregated by sex, not by so-called, quote-unquote, gender identity. Now, I know it's completely politically incorrect, and it's probably going to get me in trouble at some point, but I'm going to make the bold declaration that men belong in men's restrooms, and women belong in women's restrooms. Men should be in men's locker rooms, not saying not because they say they quote-unquote identify as a woman. That doesn't give them the legal right to go and get undressed and change in the presence of our women or our young girls. Now that used to be a self-obvious, right? Self-evident and obvious fact. But now it's no longer the case. There used to be places that were once safe spaces for women. Restrooms, for a matter of fact. Uh, uh, universities, high school locker rooms but now they've been completely opened up and the doors are wide open to any man who says that he identifies as a woman and all of this is happening at a meteoric pace without any consideration for a woman or a girl's safety or modesty or protection and all of it without any kind of public debate how many polls have you gotten to find out how you feel on this issue I guarantee I know the answer not a single one right it's just being jammed down our throat week after week day after day And again, it's all happening at an alarming rate. We live in a time where there's an absolute assault, a tyrannical assault upon the English language and new uh, pronouns that we are commanded to use. Laws are being enacted that demand our compliance with unrighteousness. Biological realities are being thrown out completely. And again, if we dare speak against these realities, against these changes, we could very easily find ourselves, our families, or even our livelihoods threatened. Now, by the way, as I was doing some research this week, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but I thought to myself, where in the world is all this coming from? It's coming in part from academia, I get that, but it's coming from other places. And I did a little bit of research, and I came across an article that linked rich white homosexual men with the institutional, uh, institutionalization of gender mm-hmm. transgender ideology, meaning homosexual men who have lots of money billionaires who are funding the transgender lobby and organize, uh, and organizations as such and through their organizations through their corporations promoting transgender issues and ideology of course along with a compliant media and it's all linked to huge pharmaceutical companies there has been an explosion in transgender medical uh, uh, technology and medicine and technological infrastructure put into uh, place across the United States and the world to quote-unquote treat transgender people. And it's not just transgender ideologies, they're actually clinics, hospital wings being built, specialized surgeries being performed, doctors being trained in all kinds of manners uh, of surgeries related to transgender individual, I- individuals, puberty blockers, uh, plastic surgeries of all kinds, uh, all kinds of drugs, hormone therapies, all being promoted so it's not just a civil liberties issue. Listen, it's a financial issue. It's a financial industry. In fact, the author of the article I was reading, it was out of The Federalist, says this, Transgenderism sits squarely in the middle of the medical industrial complex, which is by some estimates even bigger than the military industrial complex. Did you hear what I just read? We spent a lot of money on the military industrial complex in this country. Transgenderism sits squarely in the middle of the medical industrial complex, which is by some estimates even bigger than the military industrial complex. Transgenderism has made its way into the American marketplace. All that to say, again, there's a whole lot of money being made by a number of different people promoting this movement, this so-called transgender ideology. And all of it's doing, or while at the same time it's doing this, uh, by while it's being promoted, are, are young women Our girls, our children, our wives are being put at risk. They're being exposed to those things they have no business being exposed to. The Bible says in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 5 and 20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That's the time in which we live. Modern translation, Woe to those who are men who try to pass themselves off as women. And woe to those who demand that we comply and be obedient on those isu- uh, on this issue. Deuteronomy 22, verse 5 says, A woman shall not wear a man's clothing, nor shall a man put on a woman's clothing. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. This is what God's Word says. This is the truth on the issue. And we are called to be truth-tellers. We are called to be those who support truth, those who uh, uphold righteousness. Stand for those things. Ephesians 5 and 11 do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead, but instead even expose them. We're to expose evil and wickedness. And we are not to cave to a perverse, godless, and Christless culture. And for us as men in the room, and I'm going to speak to you a lot this day, I'm going to speak to the women, but I'm going to speak to the men. For us in men, as men in this room, to allow this kind of act- activity to go unchallenged, For us to allow our women, our daughters, our children to be abused by this godless culture is a shame. Our women need to be protected. And it's our responsibility as men to step up and to provide them protection. We live in a time, men, where we need to man up. Stop living like wimps in this culture. Stop caving to the whims of a a culture and a world system that is running as fast and as furious as it can to hell. We don't need our daughters to fight wars for us. We don't need new combat flight suits for pregnant women to fly our jets into battle. That's the man's role. God has called the man to step up and to protect his family and wife And if need be, protect his country. We don't need our women and daughters to do that. Our women need us as men to be biblical men. To be strong. To be compassionate. To be those who care about them. Those who are willing to stand in the gap, as it were, to protect them and to fight for them. And to exalt them in the role that God has ordained for them to lift up on high the idea of biblical femininity not allow the culture just to completely overrun us and overwhelm us with its godlessness and with its unrighteousness. Now, you know this as well as I do, but throughout the history of mankind, women have been treated poorly, victims in the truest sense of the word, victims of many injustices. And much of the history of the world, uh, women have been viewed as nothing more than slaves, not much more than just an animal. They've been abused and neglected, even potentially killed by their husband if he wanted to and with the most part no legal recourse. Women historically were those who are not uh, seen as nothing else as those who were fit to serve uh, the needs of the male population. And it wasn't until biblical Christianity came onto the scene historically that women were seen as co-heirs of eternal life, that women were seen as those created in the image of God. Therefore women sought and found refuge in the early New Testament church. From a culture that constantly abused them and it's time once again for women to find refuge in the church from a godless society that is trying to abuse them it's time for our women to understand again the great dignity and worth that god ascribes to them again having been created in god's image and created to display his glory throughout the world and again it's beyond time for us as men who claim to follow christ to the best of our ability to make sure that this happens and unless the confusion that is rampant all over the place, that, uh, there, unless there's a, an understanding of what it means to be created male and female, unless that confusion is addressed biblically, there is going to continue to be more heartache, more sorrow, more sadness, more homosexuality, more sexual abuse, more promiscuity, more mental distress, more suicide. Our young children are killing themselves over this issue because mom says you're a boy and dad says you're a girl. In fact, this last week, there was a funeral, a tragedy, a funeral of a young girl, pre-15, I believe, whose parents couldn't understand who she or he was, and one of them had a funeral for her, and the other one had a funeral for him. This is insanity. The emotional distress, the mental distress... The heartache from not understanding who you are, who we are, as God has made us, both male and female, is tragic. It has led to, obviously, a loss of biblical identity. So I thought, I've got to take this opportunity to address this issue, at least in part, and I say that in part, because there's far too much material to go through. This very easily could be a series, but it's not going to be a series. Though I thought it to be helpful to at least begin to entertain the issue and, and to speak to the exaltation of womanhood, right, biblical womanhood. So it's not so much today a Mother's Day message as, as, it, is, uh, as it is an exaltation of biblical womanhood message. I'm, I'm thankful for our women, and we should be thankful for our women. We're thankful for our daughters. We're thankful for the fact that God made them the way that God made them thankful for the fact that there are differences and they need to be exalted they need to be lifted up and celebrated not blurred into some kind of androgynous gender-free person that the world is trying to work towards and again we as fathers as, as husbands have to especially understand this issue if we're going to lead our families right on this on this subject we have to help our children understand It's amazing about what I'm going to say to you, but I'm going to say this to you. We as fathers have to be able to give an answer to our children when they come up to us and say, Daddy, what does it mean to be a man and not a woman? It used to be self-evident. No longer is it. Daddy, what does it mean to be a woman and not a man? We need to be able to give a biblical answer for those questions. Because again, our children need to know, and the world absolutely has no idea because it's completely lost as it's rejected biblical truth. So as I sat down this week to think, well, how can I help us work through this text or or this idea? What text should I turn to? Well, I had a hundred of them in my mind, and I said, well, they can't stay here till like 11 p.m. tonight. They won't be happy with me. So I thought I probably got a light on one, at least launch there. So where would I go to start to figure this out? I thought to myself, there's no better place to go except back to the beginning. So let's go back to the beginning. How about we turn to Genesis chapter 1? Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky over the cattle, and over all of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, and God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is the foundational text for our view of men and women. Both man and woman, created in God's image. Again, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Both male and female are created in God's image, not just the man. The woman also is made in, in, in God's image. Therefore, both have value, both have dignity, both have honor, both have worth. Both are created by God to reflect God. Not exactly like God, but they're similar to God. They're made to reflect God's glory. Now, God, being created in their, uh, us being created in God's image, God's an eternal being. So again, we're similar to him, like him. Not exactly, but similar. God, the eternal being, therefore men are eternal. I've told you this before. Once you're born into this world, you live forever. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. Made in the image of God. We share, share certain aspects of God's personality like him. We possess intellect. We possess emotion, will. We're able to think, to feel, to choose. We can understand beauty. We can think abstractly. We can enter into relationships. We have the capacity to worship and to love God. We share uh, experiences and attitudes and ideas and thoughts. Uh, We can even converse with God. We can worship God. We can pray, uh, pray to God. We can praise God. Because we're created in God's image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So both maleness and femaleness are a part of God's created order. And when God made man, again, both male and female, listen... That means there are only two sexes, male and female. Now, in case you didn't get that, I'll slow down and I'll repeat it. I'll go slow. There are only two sexes, male and female. In fact, I'm always looking for stuff, always reading stuff. Just in fact, a couple weeks ago, I found an article from the Endocrine Society. The Endocrine Society is an international organization of over 18,000 endocrine clinical specialists and researchers. They released a scientific statement that asserts the shocking fact that there are, listen, only two sexes, male and female. They're probably all going to get booted out and kicked out and all that kind of stuff, right? Here's what they said. The two sexes are differentiated as male and female. Or the two sexes are differentiated as females who have ovaries and produce eggs and males who have testes and produce sperm. In mammals, females typically have XX chromosomes and, and males uh, typically have XY chromosomes. So in the modern mantra of the day, follow the science. right? The scientists are telling us there's only two kinds of people on the planet, male and female. Why? Because that's the way God made them. God made us male and female. Again, both equal before God as persons. Both distinct in their manhood and in their womanhood. And the distinctions in masculinity and uh, femininity uh, are, are remarkable. Anatomy, physiological, the physical makeup, the emotional makeup, the roles, they're all ordained by God as part of his created order. And everything that is distinct between male and female again, is put in there by God as part of the created order. All that to say that there really is a difference between men and women. And it's a difference by design, and that difference by, de- by design is good. That's the way God has made things. Men and women have complementary parts that allow them to procreate and create other men and women. Women, amazingly enough, have the ability to carry another human being in their body for nine months give birth to that child and then with that same body feed and nourish that child plastic surgery is not going to provide that for you just on a physical level alone men tend to have larger body body sizes right physical body sizes than women longer and larger bones men tend to have higher oxygen carrying capacity than women men tend to be more physically aggressive than women the ligaments of females tend to be generally more lax and more fragile than their uh, those of their male counterparts and in part this is because of uh, the uh, role of childbearing. Men and women with longer uh, men with longer and larger bones and greater muscle mass tend to give men an advantage in sports and throwing and kicking. Women have wider pelvises again in part to aid in the childbearing process. They tend to have a lower center of gravity that provides them better balance in some activities. That's why you don't see men on the high beam. You want gender equality? Put some guy up there. I'd pay to watch that. Males have a higher ratio of muscle mass to body weight, which allows for greater speed and acceleration. That's why females speed female speed records uh, in running and swimming, are consistently at least 10% slower than men. That's why, on average, women tend to have two-thirds strength of men. A recent study out of Duke University compared the athletic performances by the best elite women to boys and men. Again, citing right up front the average of 10 to 12% performance gap between elite uh, elite males and elite females, but also stated the gap is smaller between elite females and non-elite males. But between elite females and non-elite males, just guys in high school. But the the gap is insurmountable. So what does that mean if you translate it into real-world results? And they stated the following, and I think it's amazing. I mean, just listen to this. It'll show you that there is a difference between males and females. Here's the study. Just in the single year, 2017... Olympic, world, and U.S. champion Tori Bowie, 100-meter lifetime best of 10.78, was beaten 15,000 times by men and boys. The same is true of Olympic, world, and U.S. champion Allison Felix's 400-meter lifetime best of 49.26. Just in a single year of 2017, men and boys around the world outperformed her more than 15,000 times. I follow Alison Felix because I know her dad and uh, have watched her career 15,000 times. And I know a little bit, just a little bit, about how hard she has worked to achieve that record. 15,000 times men and boys around the world outperformed her. The article goes on to say this. The differential isn't the result of boys and men having a male identity or more resources, better training, or superior discipline, it's because they have an androgenized body. The results make clear that sex determines win shares, W-I-N, win shares. Female athletes are defined as athletes with ovaries instead of testes and testosterone levels capable of being produced by the female non-androgenized body are not competitive for the win against males. Here defined as athletes with tails and uh, with a Testos- uh, testes and testosterone levels in the male range. The lowest end of the male range is three times higher than the highest end of the female range. Consistent with females' far lower testosterone levels, the female range is also very narrow, with the male range uh, being very broad. Then they went on in the same article. Again, it comes out of Duke University. Uh, Coleman and Shreve, S H R E V E, produced it. They had a table. And in that article, they had a table and they had a list. They had the results and the times of the best women athletes, 100 meters, 200 meters, 400, 800, 1,500, uh, 3,000 meters, 5,000 meters, high jump, pole vault, long jump, triple jump. They had those times compared. Listen to the best boys' results. That means boys under the age of 18 years of age. And across the board, boys outperformed the world's best women overwhelmingly. What they did is they listed how many times. Most of the time it was by double digit, meaning like under 99 times. A lot of the times it was triple digits in the thousands, <clears throat> right, or into the hundreds. And when you compare the world records of women over, to men over 18, the number moved up literally into the thousands almost over every event. Just like the 100 meter dash alone, the world's best women's results were outperformed over 10,000 times by men. Now, all that to say, again, there's a difference between men and women. That's the way God created them. Men should compete against men. Women should compete against women. And the two categories shouldn't be intermixed, nor their locker rooms. They should be separated. Allowing boys to say that they identify as women and to participate in women's sports is to essentially and effectively wipe out women's sports. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God made both male and female, both equal before him as persons, distinct in their manhood and in their womanhood. And again, it's only when we realize that both man and woman are created in the image and the likeness of God, that man finds a sense of dignity and significance in the world. Because nothing is more glorious in the created order than mankind. Nothing in the created order uh, of God's creation is so much like he is. And God called man to exercise dominion over the earth, to let them rule over all the earth and all that is in it. And God gave both the man and the woman a task to rule over it together, to rule over the lower creation, to both be co-regents. And then God told the man to be fruitful and multiply. Look at verse 28. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So, when God commanded man to be fruitful and multiply, implied in that command is found God's design for marriage. Well, let's just take a quick check. How many people are in the room? Or more importantly, how many people are in the garden listening to the command? I'll give you the answer. It's pretty simple. One. One of each. One man, one woman. There's the design for marriage. One man, one woman, experiencing the joy, the privilege of that deep, personal, intimate communion and relationship, that intimacy that again becomes from God's design becoming one flesh and and creating others in the image and likeness of God himself to again bring him glory. Other image bearers that would worship and serve God in the future. Turn over to Genesis chapter 2. Here's the description of man again, but just in greater detail. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. The Lord God formed man out of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden towards the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. When God created the man, He created. When, create, when God created man, He created the man Adam first, and He created him significantly different than He created the woman. Drop down to verse eighteen, which expands on on these verses. So again, He's placed them in the garden. He's commanded the man to cultivate it, not to eat from the knowledge of from the tree from the knowledge of good and evil. That's verses fifteen through seventeen. Then verse eighteen. Then the Lord said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And what you need to understand is the woman is the man's helper. Right? They are called together in the image of God to reflect God's glory. They are called to justly uh, together, jointly exercise dominion over the earth. But the woman is called to be the man's helper. But what we don't get in our culture is that wo- that word helper is an exalted title. It's an exalted title. How do you know that? Well, because I read my Bible. And the Bible tells me that. You know what the Bible tells me? The Bible tells me that God himself is called the helper. He is the helper of Israel. He is the helper of his people in the Old Testament. Psalm 54, verse 4. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. In fact, 16 out of the 19 times that that word is used in the Old Testament, it describes God. And I would suggest to you that he's certainly not weak, certainly not inferior. God is our helper. It's a word that points to God's strength. It's a a word that points to the fact that God has what his people lack. He is their helper. And men desperately need a helper. God knew that. Every woman in this room who's married to a man knows that by practical experience. In fact, they're all right now shaking their heads in affirmation. Adam desperately needed Eve. Created first, man is called to exercise a loving, sacrificial authority in the marriage relationship. He needed a helper, but the term helper doesn't mean she was created to be Adam's possession or slave. Again, the term helper is a term of strength. God created the woman to help the man give glory to God. God created the woman to fulfill the creation mandate to be fruitful and to display and to spread God's glory throughout the earth, to help Adam fulfill his God-given purposes. And again, God knew it wasn't good for the man to be alone. God knew the man could not exercise dominion and be fruitful and multiply without his wife Eve. And again, Eve was his equal with her own distinct giftedness as a complement to him in every way possible as she submitted uh, submitted herself to his loving leadership and and oversight. One, One writer says this, She was to improve his weaknesses, sharpen his strength, She was to use her God-given wisdom, strength, perspective, insight, and creativity to help him in all the ways that he crucially needed as he was called by God to love and protect and serve her sacrificially. That's a great statement. Drop down to verse 21. We need some help, men. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man, and he slept, and he took out one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place, and the Lord fashioned the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rip uh, which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man and the man said this is bone of my bone now bone of my bones flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man immediately Adam doesn't have to go to class to figure this one out immediately he recognizes this is his perfect companion this is part of him there's nothing here to criticize there are no blemishes and there are no shortcomings the chapter concludes verse 24, for this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife are both naked and they were not ashamed. Another author writes this, the man Adam was created first, given headship over the woman in creation. In fact, he gives his wife the name Eve, which is a privilege bestowed on those who have authority in the Old Testament, manifesting his authority over her But their initial original relationship was perfect and pure. His headship over her was a manifestation of his consuming love for her. Her submission to him was a manifestation of her consuming love for him. No selfishness, no self-will marred the relationship. Each lived in a perfect fulfillment of the created purposes and under God's perfect provision and care. That's a good statement, too. Made as God intended them to be made, to encourage each other, to help each other, to serve God together. Raymond Ortland, who's the past professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, explains this a little bit further. He says, This was Adam was Eve Adam's equal? He answers yes and no. She was his spiritual equal and suitable for him, but she was not his equal in that she was his helper. God did not create men and women in an undifferentiated way in their mere maleness and femaleness identity of their respective roles. A man just by virtue of his manhood is called to lead for God. A woman by virtue of her womanhood is called to help for God. Again, equal, yes, before God, but each one with a different role, a different function. Right? God designed this perfect relationship, this perfect relationship between the man and the woman, equal but distinct, where the man would step up and protect and provide for his family, for his wife. And she willingly comes along and submits herself to him as his helper. And again, Adam saw his wife Eve as one with him in every respect, both in the uh, original design, both experiencing God's design For perfect, glorious union. But, of course, this is all before the fall. All before the fall. Something terrible happens in Genesis 3, so turn there. Genesis chapter 3. Here's the fall of man. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. Verse 3, But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. Verse 4, The serpent said to the woman, You shall surely not die, for God knows in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. She gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Now the serpent comes into the scene, and he intentionally bypasses the leadership of the man, and he goes after the woman who is designed to be a follower. He deceives her into eating the forbidden fruit, and he deceives her into believing that God did not have her or their best interests in mind. And then she, in turn, persuades her husband to commit the same sin which makes uh, again satan's attack upon adam's headship a success now eve obviously sinned by not obeying god and by acting independently of her husband and failing to consult her husband about the serpent's uh, deception and adam sinned by not only disobeying god but succumbing to eve's usurpation of uh, his leadership and failing to exercise his God-given authority. And he failed on a spectacular level in in that respect, not performing the God-ordained role to lead and protect his wife. That's why he was made first. That was his job. He knew the rules, the rules he passed on to his wife. He knew what God said. It's his job to lead and to protect his wife. Now, in the process... Both the man and the woman twisted God's plan in the relationship. They reversed the roles, and we know from that point forward it's never been the same. Ray Ortland again makes a perceptive observation. He says this It is striking that we fell upon the occasion of the sex role reversal. Right? Isn't it striking, right? That we fell, man fell upon the occasion of of the sex role reversal. And then he goes on to say this, are we to institutionalize it in evangelicalism in the name of God who condemned it in the beginning? Perceptive observation. Look, we fell, man fell when he reversed the roles, and what we're doing in modern evangelicalism is not listening to God, we're listening to the culture, and we're going to institutionalize it. Because as you know, in the church, there's a tremendous push, if you don't, you should wake up, there's a tremendous push for ord- or ordaining women, a tremendous push for usurping the God-ordained roles that he has reserved for men. Again, ordaining women as pastors, elders, preachers, and congregations. Again, it's a complete reversal of God's order. And today, again, the question is, are we going to institutionalize in evangelicalism, in the name of God, that that he condemned at the beginning? If you were to look at the modern church, you'd unfortunately have to say, yeah, that's where we're going, and we're doubled down on it as fast as we can get there. Because we really don't care what God has to say anymore. If we're to be honest, we don't like being honest, but I like being honest. If we're to be honest, that's the way it is in most of modern evangelicalism because the word of God has been thrown out the door completely. And whatever the cultural whim of the hour is, is what we're embracing. I cannot remember who exactly it was, but I I read it just not too long ago. Uh, A a famous theologian of the past said, if you wait seven years, whatever the culture is doing, the church will embrace it full 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 front and that's exactly what's happening anything that comes by way of the culture you wait long enough you'll see it in the church and not only will you see it in the church it'll be a bible study that you're commanded to attend and you better get in line because that's the world system that's why i preached a few weeks ago about not being conformed to this world not letting this world form you or press you into its image your only hope is to stand on the word of god you have no hope we have no hope apart from that And the effects of this twisting and reversing of the roles are many: the distortion of the woman's role and proper submissiveness, the man's proper uh, under not uh, failing to understand man's proper authority and his headship responsibilities. The fall came and death came, pain during childbearing, strenuous work, difficulty. I mean, they had everything; God gave them everything in the garden because it all belonged to Him except one. That everything they need, and now they're going to have a hard time trying to eke out an existence on the earth. Strife in the marriage rela- relationship. The, wo- the woman's going to have a desire, the wife's going to have a desire to rule over the husband. The husband is going to be oppressive and rule over his wife. The husband designed to have a humble headship, a leading, uh, leading in love, and now has uh, replaced that with dominion over the wife. Harsh dominion or passivity. The abdication of a spiritual responsibility in the home as men pursue worldly love and power. Again, this is where the conflict between the sexes came. Uh, the unredeemed nature of both man and women uh, preoccupied, uh, preoccupied with self and self-serving that can only destroy rather than to support the humi- uh, harmonious relationship that God intended. Again, it's only the grace of God through the person of the jo- Lord Jesus Christ. It's only through the filling of the Holy Spirit that can restore the created order to the harmony that God intended for the home. that's now corrupted by sin. Unless God is the head of your house, the head of your life, the head of your house, the head of your life, Christ is the king, you submit yourself to the person of the Holy Spirit, you're going to have a difficult time. You're going to struggle. And from this point forward, Genesis 3, life has been difficult. And again, right from this point forward, throughout the history of mankind, is where male domination over women began. And again, in most cultures historically and around the world today, they treat women as nothing more than servants. Primarily sex objects who exist solely for the sensual pleasures of men. Men rejecting the fact that they've been created in the image and the likeness of God, seeing themselves as nothing more than a higher form of an animal with no divine origin, no divine purpose, no divine accountability, and they act like that. And we're all shocked when we see them acting that way, going, what in the world's wrong with them? And you say, well, look, you've trained them up from childhood in the schools to know that they're nothing more than the product of accident, time, chance over a long period of time, that they're not accountable to anybody. So they grow up in adults, and they say, well, I, I kind of like that. I think that's the way I live my life, and it's chaos everywhere. I don't know if you read the headlines. I'd like to read the headlines every once in a while, just to kind of know what's going out there, uh, going on out there, but it's not just here, it's everywhere. It's across the world. They're not protesting police here. They're protesting police in Europe. They're protesting police in South America. Protesting authority. That's what the protest is. It's not the police. It's authority. We will not have God rule over us. Didn't you read out of Psalm 2 that says (laughs) the nations probably ought to step back and uh, humble themselves and kiss the king because the king is coming. You can rebel all you want, but the king is coming. God has ordained it. So you got men rejecting the authority, rejecting the role that God has placed them in. And on the flip side of that, you have aggressive feminism. And aggressive feminism always attempts to express itself by dominating over men, to continue the rebellion, to continue the assault on the divine order. And often in aggressive feminism, they mimic the worst traits of fallen man. Brutality, cruelty, love of power, etc. and so forth. And again, from that time forward, when Satan attacked God's supreme creation, that being the family, obviously it ushered into the world again, destructive influences. You read through the book of Genesis, and it's full of fratricide, brothers killing brothers, family members killing family members, polygamy, evil sexual thought and word, uh, evil sexual acts, adultery, homosexuality, fornication, rape, incest, prostitution, seduction. All direct attacks upon the sanctity and the, uh, the harmony of the marriage relationship and the family relationship. Because Satan again knows if the home is weak, then society is weak. Because the foundational element of human society is the family, that's, why, that's the way God ordained it. Listen to Puritan Thomas Brooks. He says, Satan promises the best, but he pays with the worst. He promises honor, and he pays with disgrace. He promises pleasure, and he pays with pain. He promises profit, and he pays with loss. He promises life, and he pays with death. Right? God knows in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like him, and things will be wonderful. Come follow me. That's what Satan does. He is the ultimate liar, the ultimate murderer. Everything he says is a lie. The only place you can find truth is in God's word. So he attacks the truth. He attacks the foundation. He attacks the family. He attacks the, mar- attacks the marriage relationship. He attacks the roles. And on top of all of that, again, as Satan has attacked God's design for men and women, that has allowed him throughout history to again develop religious systems that are counterfeit to God's plans. And again, that's why you see we're having a men's retreat. We're, what's the title? The feminization of the church. Why do you see the feminization of the church? Because there's an attack on God's designed order and role of the man and the woman. Now, it doesn't, time doesn't permit me to go into all this, but you see it everywhere. Again, the intentional destruction and the blurring of the roles. And I'm not talking just in the culture. I'm talking whatever you want to call the church. Right? Intentional destruction of the role. Androgyny, referring again to the joining of the masculine and The feminine. Uh, with wiping out all of the god-ordained distinctions and differences and rules and again the church is buying into this it's been buying into this hellish satanic system for a long time now and it's not even hiding it again it's bringing it right through the front door to your pulpit blurring and removing total all total and total all human distinctions again with the goal of undermining god-given authority over every realm human uh, in in the home in government schools, church, the recogniz- uh, recognition of the feminist agenda, homosexuality, the ordination of women and homosexuals in the church it is an attack on God and the authority of his word and and what happens is the church continues to reap the whirlwind of the culture's confusion, of the culture's disorder, immorality, and apostasy as the church continues to reject the word of God. The world is in confusion, we got that, and the church is in confusion because it too has likewise followed the world. And again, you have more and more worldly philosophies coming into the church, having their destructive influences upon the church and upon the family, upon the relationship between the husband and the wife. Because wherever you reject God's word, whenever people are bent on doing their own thing, nothing but destruction comes. Look over at Genesis chapter 3, verse 20. Genesis 3, verse 20. This is after the fall. The fall brought all the chaos, all the disruption. This is after the fall. Now God now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of of all the living. It's an amazing passage. We don't have time to go into it. But listen, God said the day you eat it, but you die. They ate, they didn't die. Well, God doesn't keep his word. No, he keeps his word, I guarantee you. But God is a God of mercy, always trying to extend mercy and grace. And the man called his wife's name Eve, which is just a tremendous, tremendous verse, because she's the mother of the living. God's ordained role For the part of the woman, even after sin entered the world and destroyed everything, her role is that she would still be involved in bringing forth life. She would still be involved in bringing forth life. In fact, the word, the Hebrew word Eve is related to that word life. That would infer that the biblical womanhood, biblical femininity, involves nurturing life in others, nurturing life in others. And not just, listen, not just through physical life, through childbirth or being a mother, which a number of women are and do, but biblical femininity is not bound up solely in motherhood because there are many women throughout history who have not been able to give birth to their own child. But nevertheless, God has made biblical femininity involve nurturing life in others. And again, not just physical life, but often cultivating spiritual life. And cultivating spiritual life, nurturing spiritual life, is something that all women can do, and, all, and something that all women must do, because that's part of God's design. Again, as the result of the fall, sin made everything hard. And sin made bearing children, for some women, very difficult. Again, that's a recurring theme, is it not, in the book of Genesis? Genesis. Many women are unable to have children. It's a painful reminder that childbearing is very literally cursed in a fallen world. And again, there are many women today that that can't give birth, and they give a testimony of the anguish of that unmet longing to be a mother. But again, it's a result of sin in the world. But the rest of the scripture would remind us that you don't have to be married, you don't have to be a mother to express life-giving, nurturing, biblical femininity. Because life-giving, nurturing biblical femininity is what God has built into the woman, into her makeup, into her role. All women are are designed by God to use their relational ability, their relational giftedness, and their strengths in that area to foster, to encourage godliness in the life of other women. In the life of other women, right? God has designed that relational giftedness to foster the growth and the encouragement of godliness in the life of other women. In fact, I'm going to show you that. You're going to take your Bible and you're going to turn to Titus chapter 2. In Titus chapter 2, you're going to see Paul's exhortation to godly women to train up other godly women. And along the way, you see that not only there, but you see it's consistently taught demonstrated played out lived out by other women in the new testament there's this feminine inclination to cultivate life in others you see that for example in luke 8 where mary joanna and Susanna and other women use their financial means to sustain and nourish jesus and his disciples god calls some women to be physical mothers but he calls all women's all women to be mothers and sisters in a broader sense nurturing the spiritual life of others now, if you're a uh, an astute Bible student, you will have noticed that when you passed through the Old Testament to Titus chapter two, you passed by Proverbs 31, which I wanted to dive into, but I knew if I went down that rabbit trail, we would be here till 11 o'clock tonight, right? But let me just mention something about that because it's a wonderful passage that describes a list of unique feminine virtues. That is a model of female biblical godliness for women, and again, it helps us to understand biblical femininity. As the woman is in that passage, the woman has her strengths exalted. Right? She she is, she is a strong woman. She's selfless. She's wise. She serves others. And again, it's a picture. Proverbs thirty-one is a picture of biblical femininity of her industry, her ingenuity, her strength. She works. She gets things done. She works and she cares for the poor. She blesses others by her labor. She gives spiritual counsel. Uh, She speaks the wisdom of God. She points people to him. She seeks to bless her family and her community. Again, that's part of that biblical picture of women, biblical femininity, nurturing life. She's generous. She, she feeds the poor. She clothes them. She clothes her own children. She's a helper to her husband, a helper to her children. She does business outside the home, not just for her own financial gain, not just for the sake of her own reputation, but for the benefit of her family and her neighbors. And again, that's a common picture you see in the New Testament. Uh, among women, whether married or unmarried, Tabitha, for instance, for instance, Acts chapter 9, verse 36 Tabitha says she was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. Phoebe, uh, Romans 16:1. She was a servant of the church at Cenchreae. Women who are remembered because they cultivated life, spiritual life in others. So Proverbs 31, verse 30 says, A woman's true beauty, true beauty is not found in the way she looks on the outside, not by what she wears. But her love for God. Proverbs 31.30, charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Again, that's exactly what it says in the New Testament. Timothy, right? Paul to Timothy, 1 Timothy, Peter, 1 Peter. A, a woman's true adornment is not her hair, it's not what she wears, it's not pearls, but it's her character, her purity, her character, her virtue, her, her, her godliness, her inner beauty. As she seeks to honor God, to honor her family, to honor her husband, and she fights to bring a joy and to delight to everyone she comes in contact with. Again, in this culture, I mean, there's ad after ad after ad after ad after ad ad about this thing, and you need that thing because this is falling down and that's falling out. We need to lift this up, and we need to flatten that or extend this or do whatever, color that, you know, make up this, make up that. Uh, I I mean, you get to the end, you don't even know who the real person is. It's just all All hidden. And the Bible says, no, all this, all this stuff with the outside, that, that's deceitful. Externals are not the real you. The woman who will be praised is the one who, from the inside out, fears the Lord, serves him, works to glorify him, and all that she does, she's a true worshiper, right? And she encourages others likewise to follow her as she fulfills her role to bring life to others, Right? Now listen, if you find a woman like that, you found, the Bible says, a precious jewel, a rare find. If you're an unmarried man and a woman like that comes into your life, she'd be a true helper to you. And that woman, I guarantee you, will become more beautiful to you each and every day as you live with her. Each and every passing day you live with her. And that woman, that godly woman, will help you fulfill that role that God has given to you, to the both of you together, to honor him in all life. And listen, it's only God that can produce that kind of woman. Right? The woman who's praised by her children and praised by God, is a God is a woman that God makes. And again, that's the woman that God wants every woman to be like. That's the kind of woman that every man should desire. One who's compassionate and gracious and cares for the needy who teaches with divine wisdom. Uh, who, again, teaches with compassion and grace, who fulfills that role to be the helper to a husband, but fulfills that role to nurture life and others. And for the women in the room going, well, I never read Proverbs 31 because it discourages me, that proverb should not discourage you one bit. That proverb should encourage your heart. Because the issue is not you comparing yourselves to the Proverbs 31 woman to see how fall short you fall of her standard. The point of the proverb is to highlight the strength of women. The point of the proverb is to highlight godly biblical femininity. The point of the proverb is to show God's design, how God designed women to function in their role as he created them in this world. The issue is not comparison. You will note in the psalm, it never speaks of her weakness. It never speaks of her sin. All it does is exalt her God-given virtues. It exalts her God-given talents. And that should be an encouragement, right? We should be encouraged by that, elevated, and those talents should be recognized. Again, it's a picture of godly femininity that should cause all women to strive towards as they depend on the Lord. And men should come alongside and recognize those in their women around them. And and again, exalt God and thank God as he gives a wife to you like that. Who's that tremendous helper? Last time I read my Bible, no one's perfect. Everyone's a sinner, even the Proverbs 31 woman. So stop comparing yourself. That's not the issue. And none of us are saved by our ability to perform. We're only saved by trusting in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one whom God promised to send into this world, even though mankind rebelled against him. The seed of the woman who would come, the offspring of Eve in Genesis 3 and 15. The great son who would come and crush the serpent's head and undo the curse and, and give us life and make all things new. The one who comes and takes upon himself our sin, our debt, becomes our substitute, pays our penalty, rises, defeating death, saving everyone, everyone who places their faith in him. The person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman, the hope of mankind. So if you're a woman, God has created you with intentionality to reflect his image in the ways that are distinct from men, He's designed you to be the helper, to use your gifts, your passions, your interests, your strengths, your background, etc., and so forth, to honor him, to encourage others. Don't reject that God-given role. Don't listen to the culture that, again, is running as fast as it can towards hell. Embrace that God-given role. Embrace your calling. Now, obviously, by now, I hope that even the worst of you in finding your books in a Bible have found your way to Titus 2. Right, because I've given you enough time. If not, just listen. And again, this is a lot more than we got time to get into today, either. Uh, either so, I'm just going to quickly move through this. Titus two verse three. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, that they may encourage their young women to or may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands. That the word of God may not be dishonored. So again, here's mentoring. Here's this spiritual nurturing mandate. Here's this life-giving, nurturing femininity that God has made up into or built into the women's makeup or to a woman's makeup into a woman's role. So again, God has designed women to use their relational giftedness, their strengths, to foster fruitful growth in encouragement and godliness in the life of other women. Verse 3, older women have a responsibility in the church to model, to teach, to encourage younger women in the things of the Lord to minister to other women of any age, whether single, married, or widowed. Likewise, older women are to be reverent in their behavior. The word reverent there actually has a root meaning that is linked back to being priest-like, priest-like. So it refers to that which is appropriate in holiness. So older women are to be godly examples of holiness. Older women are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips. Now women in general, but older women especially, are refused to listen to, much less propagate, or be involved with slanderous demeaning uh, uh, demeaning words about others. Men are more inclined to abuse others physically. Women are more inclined to abuse others verbally, which can in turn be even more destructive. So women are to have nothing to do with this vi- kind of violent, malicious activity. In fact, the word there, the term malicious gossips, actually translates out of the Greek as diabolos. might be familiar with that term. Diabolos, slanderer, false accuser. It's a word that Christ used 34 times in the New Testament as a title of Satan. Again, whom Christ himself described as the father of lies, Women are to have nothing to do with that. They're not to be enslaved to much wine. They shouldn't be drunkards. They shouldn't be under control of something else other than the person of the Holy Spirit. Rather, they should be teaching that which is good. So older women in the body of Christ should be known for their teaching, which is noble, excellent, lofty, exalted, teaching which is godly, which is holy, holy. So having trained up their own children well, older women now have a responsibility to teach up the other women in the church to encourage them to be righteous, to be righteous wives, righteous mothers. Now, obviously, I get it in the context Paul is speaking to wives, young women who are married. But again, obviously, it's not God's plan for all women to marry or all men to marry. And and God has given certain people the giftedness of singleness. But here in the context, he's speaking to young women who are married and who have children, uh, again, young wives, older wives giving direction, older women giving direction to younger women. And the older women are to teach, to model, and to encourage godliness. He says to encourage the young women in the church. And that word encourage literally means to cause many to be of sound mind and to have self-control. Sometimes the word is rendered sensible, sensibly, self-restrained. It refers to helping others cultivate good judgment and sensibility. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, or enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, verse 4, that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands. Now here in the context is not speaking primarily of romantic or sexual love, which is appropriate in the marriage relationship, but he's talk, she, uh, Paul is talking about a committed love, a godly love that a wife is to have for her husband, just as a godly husband is to have for his wife. A willing, determined love, not based on a husband's worthiness, but based on God's command. Love your husband, because that's what God commanded you to do. Yeah, but you don't know. I don't care. Every time I enter into biblical or to marriage counseling, when I hear what you don't, I know, I don't understand. Okay, I'll listen to you for a few moments, but can I tell you what God's word said? And I don't know I got it. I'm not trying to be insensitive. I don't know. I don't understand all the circumstances, but I knew what, do know what God's word says. And I do know that the only hope that you have, the only help that you have, the only help that I have, and the only help that I have, is if I'm obedient to the word of God and get all the buts out of the way. Yeah, but, yeah, but. Okay. When we go to yeah, but territory in my counseling, I know that I'm not doing a very good job because we're not listening to the truth. I don't have anything to offer you. So if you wanted to come to me after the service this morning and get counseling, I'm just going to take you to the word of God. And if you need a hug, I'll give you a hug. I mean, I love you. But, but uh, my hug's not going to solve your problem. You hugging me is not going to solve my problem. The only thing going to solve our problem is being obedient to the word of God. Demand, right? Teach the young women to love their husbands. Maybe a wife who loved her husband might go a long way to get him into the kingdom. I just read a book called Peter a while ago. It says something about that thing. Then her just always pressing him. You don't come to church. You don't. Why don't you just love your husband and be quiet? Gentle, quiet spirit. Pray. Let God work in his heart. Just a suggestion. A determined love. A determined love that's called by, the, by God for the man. A determined love that's called, uh, demanded by, the, by God for the wife. Encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children. Older women are to teach their young, the younger women to love their children. You say, you got to teach that? Well, yeah, you got to teach that. I mean, I know it's kind of built in, but uh, I don't know, I've seen five of them, and I am what about the job that my wife had with them. They're little terrifying beasts. <laughs> oh, I know they're cute on your little picture, and you send it to grandma and Grandma goes, "Oh, you know, that's only because grandma doesn't have to raise them for the most part." You know Love your children. Older women need to come alongside and encourage that. Be affectionate. Christ-like love, devoted love. A selfless sacrificial love. That the husband and wife are to show each other that so that too, that same love is to be for the children as a gift. Because the children are a gift from the Lord. I'm debating on whether to say this or not, but I know that some of you came from Mm -hmm. homes where you weren't displayed that kind of love. And that's a tragedy. So in a sense, you need to be taught how does that godlike love look so I can display it to the next generation and to make sure that we don't follow that same pattern in my life, our lives, our family's lives. I mean no disrespect, but I learned a lot of things from my father on the ways to do things, and I learned a lot of things from my father on ways not to do things. And I made observation of those as a young man. What does the word of God say? I want my life, my family's life, reflect the word of god there's a lot of kids out there that need godly love biblical love a lot of women that need encouragement in that area older women need to come alongside them and encourage them encourage the young women to love their husbands to love their children to lead them uh, to a sense of, of uh, uh, to a knowledge of, of god the knowledge of christ verse five says be sensible teach them to have common sense and good judgment." Man, there's not a lot of that floating around the world today. It's got to be taught encouraged. Teach them to be pure. And that word pure means primarily moral purity, sexual purity, marital faithfulness. Again, it needs to be taught. Make sure you teach a young woman, the young women how to dress modestly in front of other men. Because modesty is not a high component or a, a high commodity in the world in which we live. Never doing anything or dressing in a fashion that would cause another man to lust. Teach them to be workers at home. And this is probably the hard one. This is probably the hardest thing for the contemporary Christian woman because she has been so influenced by a godless culture around her that tells her she cannot find satisfaction or fulfillment unless she is outside of the home working in some kind of profession or some kind of job. You're just a loser. What do you do? You go to fill out an application. What's your job? Housewife. And they go, (laughs) really? Nobody does that anymore. Well, somebody better do that. Somebody better fulfill the role that God has ordained them to if you want to fulfill and promote holiness and righteousness to the next generation. Now, obviously, women who are not married, women who don't have children, women whose children are now out of the home, might be reasonable for them to have an outside job. Obviously, I get it, okay? I'm not stupid. Obviously, there's certain financial pressures, and especially in the world in which we live, certain financial issues that require both spouses to work. But in God's ordained order, in God's created order, God has given the woman dominion over the home. She has responsibility in that sphere. She has responsibility in her home. And really that should be her priority, her highest priority, to support and encourage her husband, to extend hospitality to Christian friends and unbelieving neighbors. But most importantly, to train up the next generation of godly young men and women in her, cho- in her own home, her children. It's the first line of discipleship. Right, brother? We're going to go out and talk about discipleship. We're going to go talk about evangelism. You better start in your home. It's the first line where the gospel needs to be heard over and over and over again and repeated and understood. Jesus asked the rich man, What is the value for you to gain the whole world and lose your own soul? Likewise, I think a question could be asked in the modern context to the husband and wife of the world. What value is it for you to, dive to, to drive two or three fancy cars, to have two boats, two houses, take many vacations throughout the year at the expense of losing the souls of your own children? What are the priorities? This the world's passing away, everything in it's going to burn out. Again, it's not original with me, but you never saw Hearst uh, with a uh, U-Haul behind it. You're not taking any of this junk with you. Again, I realize that not every woman can stay home. But I think deep down within every woman's heart, especially those who have children, is they want to be there in their home. They want to love their children. They want to love their husbands. They want to influence their children in a godly fashion. And again, husbands want to make sure that they're protecting their wives from ungodly external influences. Someone once says this, the true female victim of today is not the woman who willingly is bound by love to the Lord or to her husband and to her children. The true victim of our day are those women who have been deceived by unbiblical and satanic feminist ideas about being liberated from God and liberated from the home. That's the true victim. Listen to the culture. Don't go there. Don't be, in the, don't be in the home. Don't be bound to all that old-fashioned old nonsense. Now, those are the true victims who listen to that in the church, women who listen to that and don't listen to the word of God. Courage young women to, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind. Just means gentle, gentle and considerate. Sympathetic to those around them, even those who are unkind, undeserving. And again, being subject to their own husband subject to their own husband, which means not subject to another person's husband. Again, men, I would encourage you, if at all possible, the great way to protect your wife from the unbelieving world is don't put her in a position where she has to subject herself to someone around her who may not care, a man who may not care about her like you do, a man who may not love her in the same fashion that you do. Protect her from that worldly influence, so in that portion of scripture I just read, there's seven virtues, seven biblical feminine virtues listed with a clear call to action. Young women should love their husbands, love their children, be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, be subject to their own husbands. The virtues listed here are not just some kind of, let's return to the great good old days, right, where traditional values, you know. It's not what it's here. It's not wise here. The command to love your husband, to love your children, Be fruitful, uh, workers at home, submissive to your husband. It is not a cultural requirement of a bygone era that has no application to modern society. The passage remains as relevant and authoritative today as the day in which it was written because the virtues that are listed there are not about personal fulfillment. They're not about individual preference. They're listed there to honor God, yes, but they're listed there for the sake of the unbeliever that the unbeliever might come to know Christ. You say, how in the world do you get that? Again, I just read the Bible. Just read what it says next, verse 5. Encourage young women to be lovers, to, be, uh, uh, to love their, their husband, love their children, be sensible, workers, pure workers at home, kind, subject to their own husband. Verse 5, that the word of God may not be dishonored. That's why, That the word of God may not be dishonored. He's saying, look, how you conduct yourself matters. How you live in a lost world matters. It's important. The world has no anchors. The world has no foundation. Everyone in the world is doing what's right in their own eyes. Work that out on the freeway, where there are no rules. You can go any direction you want. You can turn without turn signals. My wife's smiling. It's like going to Sao Paulo. She knows. We've been there. If there are five lanes, there are eight lanes of traffic. Turn signals, stops stop signs aren't even close to a suggestion they are irrelevant they have to speed they have to put massive mounds of of asphalt in the road speed bumps we would call them to slow people down or you just blow out the entire undercarriage of your car cuz nobody pays attention to the rules and that's the way it is in this world everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes it's chaos the world has no anchors But God has left us in the world to be an example of godliness and holiness and righteousness. An example. The world around us wants to see if the Bible actually makes a difference in our life. And again, women made as co-heirs, co-regents, co-heirs of salvation, made in the image and likeness of God, you have a tremendous responsibility, a wonderful responsibility, a great privilege to show that the gospel does indeed change lives. Change your life. Change the way that you interact with your husband, your family, why you do what you do. You have a wonderful opportunity of teaching other women in the congregation and those around you to reinforce biblical feminine Christian virtues. Uh, A wonderful privilege of entering into this relationship, uh, uh, this uh, encouraging life-nurturing relationship with other women to fulfill God's role as he has ordained you. Listen, we exalt biblical womanhood. We exalt biblical femininity. We are thankful for the women in our lives, the godly women in our lives. We are thankful for the differences between men and women. We're thankful for all of the godly women who have encouraged us and challenged us to fulfill our roles as godly men to honor God in all that we do. And we as men need to let our women in our lives know how much we appreciate them and how much we are thankful for them. And let me tell you what, as a man, if you have children, then you need to make sure your children know how much or how special their mom is. And you should be regularly praising their mom in front of them. You should be encouraging them, likewise, to do the same, to praise their mom for her godlikeness, her Christlikeness, for her godly influence in their lives. If my children ever dared say something disrespectful to their mom. They would have a difficult time taking the next breath and probably sitting or standing for the rest of the day. We need to protect our women. We need to be praising them. We as men need to be exalting the biblical role that God has called our women to. We need to stop caving into the culture, the lost world around us. We need to step up and protect our women from this godless, Christless culture that wants to abuse them, that wants to discourage them, that is intentional on destroying our families, which is, again, the foundation of our society. Our Father and our God, we're so thankful for this brief look at this topic that's so desperately needed in the day in which we live, and we're thankful for your word. Your word is truth, and your word is our help. Your word is our only hope. Help us to think deeply on your truth and to live out godly, Christ-like lives that exalt you our God and exalt Christ our Savior again we're thankful for our women thankful for them and if we come from perhaps backgrounds where that was not modeled then other older women need to come and help encourage the younger women to model that in their homes to model that in their life to fulfill the role that you have called them to the exalted role we're so thankful for that difference between maleness and femaleness so thankful for, again, godly women in our life who have helped us to honor and to glorify you. May we be biblical and not caught up in the culture. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.